We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 13. The message that the Lord gave me is called a, a window of opportunity. A window of opportunity. 2 Kings chapter 13. A window of opportunity, also called a critical window, um, is describing this margin of opportunity that we all sense in our life. Um, it's given this word because a window you can see out of. But how many of you know if you don't open a window, you can't receive what's on the other side of that window? And so many of us are picture ourselves as looking at this window, waiting for an opportunity to come by. And the reason why we're looking is because we understand that a window of opportunity is a limited time thing. It's only going to last for a certain amount of time. So it needs to be taken advantage of rapidly before the window of opportunity is gone. It's a very short time frame with the window of opportunity. And how many of you know that when a window of opportunity comes open, you don't always have all the answers about what's on the other side of the window? So many times we're led to a crossroads in our life and what looks like an opportunity can be uh, a curse, but then sometimes it can be a blessing. But we know we've got to decide because we're running out of time. We're running out of time. And the window might not be there tomorrow. So it's an opportunity that where we can achieve this desired outcome, but it's constantly moving. The world is spinning something like 20,000 miles per hour. Did you know that? But somehow we're here. But everything's in constant motion all the time. And we grasp that as people. Things are moving and things are changing. And we need to be a people that are in the present time, have a future insight by the prophetic who can apprehend those things that God's calling us to apprehend in the time that we're at now. Because once now moves on, we don't have now anymore. Now becomes then. And if too many now is starting to become then, we can miss that strategic point that God wants us to take and God wants us to have. These are time-sensitive periods that can't be revisited. You can't get back tomorrow. It's gone. Tomorrow is gone. But the odd thing is, the only way I can apprehend the now in this moment, when I apprehend the now, the now becomes the then. So can I ever really apprehend the now? There's a theory in philosophy called the time lag theory. You realize when you look at the sun, it's 93 million miles away. You realize it would take eight minutes for the sun to run out of light if it was to extinguish before it would get to your eye and you would know that the sun is extinguished. So right now you could be looking at the sun thinking it's now, but it's actually eight minutes ahead of where you're really at. So time is moving. There's things we're banking on that we can only be sure of if we can apprehend them by the Spirit of God. If we're the people of God who can know the seasons and the times that we're in. And we've all felt these opportunities, right? Sometimes we've seized them and sometimes we've missed them, haven't we? And we'll always go back, won't we, to that moment of that window where I said, oh, I should, 
I would have just listened to the Lord and not the circumstances. Or if I would have opened that window that the Lord was leading me through, it was just so fearful I wasn't sure. But that one window of opportunity has shaped the rest of my life. So the window's not insignificant. It's significant. And the only way we apprehend the window is to know what to do in the now based on the future that God has revealed to us in the Spirit. So it's a real time-sensitive, tricky thing we're walking out here. Others feel that their time has passed. I know there's some in here that feel like you missed your window and it's over for you. There's some in here that are waiting on their window trying to figure out God, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? But if any of us have ever missed our windows of opportunities, how many of you know hopelessness can fill your soul? And then a drab, mediocre view of the world begins to enter in to your heart. And you quit looking for the window. You don't even look for the window anymore because you've already resigned in your heart that the window's not coming. And as this begins to inform your soul and begins to pour into your consciousness, you begin to stop dreaming for God. You begin to stop working for God. You quit believing for big things. You just throw your change at other people's visions and other people's ministries, never finding out what God has put you on this earth to do. You begin to be pacified with hearing the testimonies of others, but yet having none yourself. We then enter the mundane, the armchair quarterback, the everyday rut. Where we're calling plays from the sidelines, but we ain't been in the game in a long time. We ain't been in the game in a long time. You know, the thing about a rut is, it's just a grave with both ends kicked out. But let me tell you this, you can drive on out of a rut. You can't drive out of the grave. Hello? So if you're breathing air this morning, you've got hope in your life. If you're drawing a breath, Almighty God is telling your heart to beat. He's telling your lungs to pull down and to suck in breath. That that's the Almighty God doing that. And why would He do that if it was wasteful and unnecessary to keep you alive? See, you've thought that biology and evolution has somehow kept you alive. And you're a sack of skin with a bunch of chemical reactions going on. But I'm here to tell you that it's the Spirit of God that's making your heart beat. It's the Spirit of God that's putting air in your lungs. And He's got purpose for you. And He's got hope for you. I don't care if your dreams have been dashed on the rocks of disappointments. God's got a plan. God's got a plan. We went to Mid-America the other day and they have this huge Tesla coil. And it shoots out electricity like so loud. Here we are with our three-year-old and she's got on earmuffs. I mean, it's, I mean, this thing's impressive. And this Tesla coil shoots out electricity, but there's a cage of iron around it that is between you and the electricity. If not, the coil, the voltage would just hit you. So you get to watch this thing just arcing on this cage, and it's really magnificent. But, but one of the things that Tesla, who invented it, 
One of the things that was said about him when he was born, he was born during a thunderstorm. Out of destiny, I guess. He was born during a thunderstorm. And see, Edison gets all the credit, but Edison invented direct current, which was not efficient. And Tesla invented alternating current, which was very efficient, which enabled us to send electricity for a long, 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 way longer ways. If we would have went by Edison's day, I know y'all didn't sign up for this, but just, stay, just bear with me, okay? We're going to talk about Edison a little bit. We would have had to put a generator every mile to work Edison's plan out, but Tesla's plan was much more efficient, but he didn't get the credit given uh, some weird happenings. But here he is born on a thunderstorm. And the history tells us that the midwife looked out the window and said, he's a child of the storm. But the mom stepped up and said, no, he's a child of light. <laughs> that you might be positioned right now where it looks like a storm. <laughs> And it doesn't look like a window of opportunity. It looks like a lot of arcing and a lot of chaos. But I'm here to tell you, God can teach you how to open that window and harness that storm and begin to get purpose to things. And what you thought was going to kill you ended up empowering you by the Spirit of God and making you into that thing that God had called you to be. But you're not a child of the storm. You're a child of light. Because the Father says you're a child of the light that's why that's why chapter 13 second kings this summarizes the reign of jehu it also summarizes the reigns of two other kings these kings had some issues and before we get high and mighty we better know we've got some issues the Bible isn't informing us of the faults of others. It's informing us of our own plight as humanity. And it's pointing us to the only answer, which is God. Amen. So this kind of closes out. This is Elisha, who was the prophet of God. This summarizes his death and his last prophecy as well. So a lot of things going on here as Elisha's on his sickbed. Where our text takes off. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Now, when Elijah had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elijah said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. Get this. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. See, a prophet in this period was like the connection to God. If you wanted a now word, it was only going to come through the prophet. And the prophet's got a really tough lot in life because a lot of times people didn't want to hear what God had to say. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And so they elevated prophets because they had itching ears and wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And so, so Elisha here is, is the voice of God. But something's peculiar here because this man by the name of Joash is, is sitting there and he calls out and he says, My father, my father. Looks good at this point. This is Elijah. The Elisha, this is the representation of God. He says something weird. 
doesn't say, my father, my father. The voice of God is going to depart with you. What does he say? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's calling out on the prophet of God to try to speak some blessing into his circumstances to alleviate his suffering. But his cry isn't that he might have the voice of God and the presence of God in relationship with God himself. That he was hearkening onto God to alleviate his suffering, but not hearkening onto God for God himself, for relationship. So this prophet that was the voice of God in the earth, and here's the king coming to the prophet. The king sees the current circumstances in which he is in. He realizes that Elijah was on the scene, and Elijah got swept up into heaven, and then he lays his calling on to Elisha. But here's Elisha on the sickbed. And it doesn't look like anybody's going to pick it up. So instead of getting mentorship and relationship and walking in the thing. He asks for one last blessing. So still at this point. It looks like it's going to die with Elisha. But look what happens here in this, in this story. The king sees the current circumstances and he wants to secure these victories in war with Israel's enemies. But he's trying to do it by living through someone else's relationship with God. And when we live through other people's relationships with God, you know as deep as our relationship goes is this right here. Hey, can you pray for me? This bad thing happened. All right, sounds good. Bye. And for some of us, that's as deep as our relationship goes. Tragedy. Woohoo! God's house. Oh, alleviation of my pain and suffering. All right. Back to my agenda. God wants more than that. He's calling us and beckoning us into relationship. Never presume your relationship with God because you're with somebody in the room that has a relationship with God. Where we used to go out and witness to people and this was like one of the number one things. Are you saved? Is your heart right with Christ? Oh yeah, my uncle's a pastor down at so and so. Oh yeah, my aunt, she's a deaconess down there at I asked about you. This is what happened to the children of Israel. They begin to presume upon their bloodline and counted it as some kind of righteousness. And they tell Jesus, Jesus, how dare you talk that way with us? We're the children of Abraham. Jesus says, No, you're the sons of Satan. John the Baptist said, God can make children out of these rocks. How dare you think because of your situation and because of someone else's relationship with God, you're somehow in this thing. And it's really an honor. 
You know, it sounds tough. Like, well, man, take it easy. No, it's really an honor. The king of the universe is calling you into relationship with him, despite how crummy you actually are at times. Man, he's saying, I love you. Have relationship with me. And, ugh, just relieve my suffering and help me enable the current thing that I'm in and the current life that I'm in, but don't ever hit me to the level that I have to really change my life. Just help my circumstances. See, when we're looking to better our circumstances, we do it at the expense of the glory of God. That's why the Apostle Paul is always talking about suffering and glory side by side. That's why he's always saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because he's in the fight, man. He's in the fight. He's in relationship with God and he sees Jesus as his treasure. But did you notice something here? That the king pulls back his bow, right? And the Bible tells us that Elisha went and laid his hands on the king's hands. So it's kind of like that tennis pro thing, you know, where you're teaching somebody to play tennis and then the, the pro gets behind them and here's how you hit the ball. So this is a little weirder because it's with a bow and arrow and two guys, but regardless, it's... Just go with it, okay? And as he's pulling back the bow... Elisha is the representation of God, the voice of God. And so he's saying, King, you don't have your hands on this bow by yourself. God has this hands on the bow too. So how many of you know it's hard sometimes to hold the bow back waiting for the window of opportunity? And sometimes faithfulness begins to get weary. And you start to shake but you've got to remind yourself that it's not by your strength. It's not by your might. But it's by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is behind you. And He's holding this bow. And you feel like it's all in your hands. But the real reality is, if you let it go, He would still be holding on, waiting to give you some relief. And so we're in this tension of, God, am I holding or are you holding? Am I holding or are you holding? Am I holding or are you holding? God, am I holding or are you holding? And then we let go and we find out, He's holding. Because the window wasn't open. <laughs> Praise God. No, the window really wasn't open. Check this out. Verse 17. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. <laughs> so here they are pulled back and the window's not even open. It's like, it's a really weird scenario. So I guess he had to say, okay, okay, let go, Elijah. Okay. Okay, back, okay, back where you were. Then Elisha said, shoot. I mean, like, shoot, not like, oh, man, the window wasn't open, but like, shoot this. Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. Oh, man. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the crown with them. And he struck three times and stopped. 
Notice at one point, Elisha is guiding the king's hand on the first shot. But then he tells the king he has to shoot himself. See, we can get a lot of guidance along the way. But there comes a time where like God told King David, strengthen your hands for war so that you might bend a bow of bronze. See, there comes a time where people can guide you and get you by the hands and you need that period in your life or otherwise you're shooting way up here or something. Uh, But there comes a point to where after that first arrow that you're going to have to learn to win some wars by yourself. You're going to have to learn to be patient and wait at those windows of opportunity and don't move until God says to move. And if you don't learn that lesson, you're going to be shooting arrows, killing a bunch of people and you're going to miss the enemies of God and you're going to begin to hit the people of God because you didn't wait on the Lord. You didn't let Him strengthen you. You didn't let Him do what He was wanting to do in your life. And it was all about your arrow and your target that you're shooting for and not about the purposes of God in your life. So here's Elijah. He's got in the king's hands, but now he says, okay, you, you shoot. In antiquity, this was a popular custom. It's said that Alexander the Great, while he was conquering the known world at the time, went to the coast of Iona and he threw a dart signifying that he was coming after the Persians and he was going to defeat them. That this was emblematic of a conqueror. This was a public declaration that war is coming and that God had his back and that God was going to be with them as they went to war with Assyria. So in a test of this king's faith, Elijah, Elisha instructed the king to shoot an arrow eastward towards Syria. And to shoot, keep shooting. But the Bible tells us that he shot three times and stopped. This was revealing something in the king's heart verse 19 and then the men of God was angry with him and said you should have struck five or six times then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it but now you will strike Syria only three times now get this strange ending verse 20 so Elisha died and they buried him now the bands of the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year prophet's dead the voice of God appears to be gone the king has only the faith for a partial victory not enough to destroy but just to weaken and then Moabites are invading the land window of opportunity was here it's gone I would think that Elijah Elisha would say hey you know what shoot a couple more arrows but he doesn't see this was all about revealing what was in the king's heart so it sounds bad Elisha dies his last words are a rebuke the king desired to Uh, shoot an arrow and to get some kind of counsel but he doesn't go all the way in with God it's like what is going on here 
why would he only shoot three arrows if the window's open and God says, you know, Katie, bar the door, just go. He doesn't. Here's what was in the king's heart. Syria had invaded Israel. But on the other side of Syria was a nation that was on the rise that was the world power called Assyria. So the king wants to maintain a weakened Syria so he doesn't have to face the bigger giant called Assyria. That many times we will maintain a weakened foe around us to not have to go all the way in and face the bigger foe that God is actually calling us to. It's kind of like King David and his brothers. All the armies of Israel are gathered there in a war against the Philistines, but nobody's going to fight Goliath except for David. They can maintain the posture that they're fighting and look like they're in the war, but yet the giants never dealt with. That is good. If I was in a Pentecostal church, I'd be shouting right now, but that's all right. I'll wait on you. I'll wait on you. So he tries to maintain this buffer state. He likes being king of Israel, but to go all the way out and really face Assyria, not possible. So because of this fear and lack of zealousness, complete deliverance could not be obtained. And this happens in our life all the time because we don't want to upset the powers that be because we don't want to upset the systems that are in place. We would maintain the posture that we're not godless, but we never enter into the place to where we're actually godly. We maintain the sin issue and act like that's the thing, but it's not the thing. That maintained sin issue that we keep weakened is actually our excuse for not dealing with it and going on to the bigger thing. Because that thing is scary. And that thing only gets dealt with when we're supernatural people. And if we're not supernatural people, guess what? God gets no glory. Why? Because we could have did it in our own flesh. We could have did it in our own flesh. And if it's not supernatural, God gets no glory. See, Syria is not supernatural. Assyria. That foe, Supernatural. Because they were coming on the scene. Matter of fact, in 722, they conquer Israel, deport everybody that was worth anything, and then put their people back in place. Thus, there's the Samaritan race. See, we say, I'll go this far with God because I got to keep a good name. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> I'm not going to be that person that's free in worship. Got a name to uphold. I'm not going to witness to people in public. That's weird. People that do that are weird. That's just not my personality type. No, you just like a weak in Syria. You like a weak in Syria and you don't want to deal with us, Syria. 
This is what's reflected in the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Now get this. This is, this is just troubling. And if he rescued righteous Lot... Wait, righteous Lot? Somebody get the Greek lexicon out there. That can't be right. Righteous Lot. You know, the guy that where the, the gang, the angry mob comes in and tries to abuse the angels that he's harboring in his house. You know, the guy that says, here, take my two virgin daughters. The guy that chooses to be in Sodom and Gomorrah instead of going the righteous way with Abraham. The guy that stays in there and has to, has to be led out by two angels to say, get out of here. The guy that his wife turns around, turns into a pillar of salt, and he goes into a cave with his daughters and has incestual relationship and then creates two of Israel's worst enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Peter, you missed it. But here's what it's really saying. Lot was righteous compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he wasn't righteous in and of himself like the righteousness of Christ. See, some of us are righteous in our own context and we think we're okay. But the reality is God isn't calling us to be righteous in our own context. He's called us to be the righteousness of God in Christ. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's calling us to something greater. So here we are, a window of opportunity to get the victory with God, but for some reason, we're holding back. What's keeping us? Is it the fear of what other people are going to say? Some of us live in the prison of, of the fear of expectations of others. That's a hard place to be. Whew. That's tyranny. That's lashes to the back. So, so Elijah ascends into heaven, passes the calling to Elisha, but now Elisha just dies. Leaves a rebuke. Passes away. Now what? You ever missed your window and felt like, now what? Is it over, God? <laughs> Is it over? But something in us says something's not right. There's never a moment where God doesn't leave us without hope. And with every temptation, he always makes a way of escape. He always is working all things together for the good, and I interpret that all things as all things. But now watch this in verse 21. This story gets even weirder here. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band, remember the Moabites, was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, 
he revived and stood on his feet. Okay, we can just say this. Elisha was bad to the bone. Cue George Thorogood right there. So what has happened here is this marauding band is coming and here they're having this funeral procession. They see this band of marauders coming in to raid them. They think, here we got this dead body. What can we do? They go to a random cave that's sealed. They move the stone away, throw the corpse into the cave, flee for their lives. That corpse touches another corpse, and a guy walks up out of the tomb. Now, what is that a picture of? Somebody coming up out of the tomb. Come on now. Come on now, God's saying, yeah, the prophet might have missed it on this one because the prophetic promise is that God's still going forward and that he's still making all things new. And if you'll throw that dead thing into the tomb, the cross of Christ and the resurrection power of the Lord will make you come out on your two feet and he'll fill you with the promises of God and the purposes of God that he has for you to walk in. How weird. A corpse hits a corpse and he comes to life. God's saying, Elisha, we ain't going out like that. Elisha, I know you had the window prophecy, but I got more plans for the people of God than your limited view of that Old Testament prophecy. That I'm going to make a man... And that I'm going to become a man named Jesus Christ. And he's going to clothe himself and cocoon himself in human flesh. And he's going to be tempted at all points. Yet he's going to be without sin. And he's going to undo the death that happened in Adam. And if any of my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And throw themselves at the feet of my death and resurrection. They too will hit my bones and hit my life. This guy was being drug around. This guy was being drug around. Death carried. Some of you being carried here today, I already know it. This wasn't your idea to be here. Somebody drug you up in here. But I wish you had let them go ahead and throw you into that cave called the resurrection of Christ. Because if you let them throw you in that cave, you'll come out standing on your own two feet again. I guess I've preached enough. Only going to get about five excited, it looks like. But me and this five, we'll go change the world. How about that? going on with me let's blame it on the anointing I'm here to tell you that the best is yet to come in your life I'll keep saying it I don't care how bad it is for you the best is yet to come in your life if you will surrender yourself to God and quit playing games with Him and quit trying to posture and keep your respectability but you'll just lay yourself like a child at the feet of Jesus He'll save you. He'll do a work in your heart that you can't believe. 
I was scrounging up change in a cup holder to buy beer to go home so that I could drink and not have anxiety and go to sleep. That's who I was. I'm not some generation of this long line of pastors that just lived great. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. And if somebody will just say yes to God, if somebody will just say yes to God, He's not asking you to do a bit, bunch of stuff. Just say yes. I give up. I give up, God. I give up. I was so low before I come to God, my front pocket had gravel in it. I crawled to the altar. <laughs> I was sitting by my mother. Mom had been dragging me around trying to throw me in that cave for a long time. <laughs> Sitting in the second row, Malvern First Assembly, 2004. Tried everything my way and kept hitting dead ends. And I finally said, all right, Mom, lay off. I'll come to church with you. I had to move out and move in with my parents. You ever been there? It's embarrassing, man. But God loves you enough to embarrass you to get you to Him. Amen. He does. There I'm second row. Pastor gives the altar call. I'm thinking the ceiling's going to cave in. I've been living in rebellion a long time. And if you grew up in the church I grew up, Sunday morning was hell. Sunday night was Jesus was coming back. <laughs> you wasn't much hot room for hope, man. You just... Huh. But you know I went there and he preached the Lord is a strong tower that you can run into <laughs> and be safe. I thought the wall was going to come down instead I ran into a tower. Instead, I found safety. It doesn't make sense. And we've got to get rid of our preconceived notions of what we think about God or it'll never make sense. And we'll never step out for God. You know, pastor gave the altar call. I still wasn't sold. My mom hits me in the ribs with a stiletto elbow. <laughs> oh! Go up there. Oh. <laughs> next time, next time. Yeah, yeah, right. Next time you won't be in the house of God. Come on. So I sat there. And as I'm sitting there, I suddenly wanted to stand up. But you know what? I couldn't. I don't know if the devils was on my shoulders or what, but I could not stand up. And in that moment, God showed me the war that goes on for a soul. 
because I wanted to stand up, but I couldn't. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if people started praying or what, but something broke off me. And I stood up. And I went down to the altar. And it was one of those altar calls where I was the only one that responded. Y'all know those. <laughs> you know, at least have the one guy that always answers to, you know, break the ice where you can, oh, yeah, he's bad too, okay. <laughs> Come on now, I've been in church long enough. Y'all know how this thing works. And I went down. And I laid down there. I probably snotted and teared up the varnish off of that old curved altar. And you know when you're down there and you finally make your peace with God, but you say, I don't want to get up because everybody's going to be looking at me. And you think, well, maybe other people have responded too. And I stood up. Nope, just me. <laughs> Snot and tears. Collar it all out. Walk of shame back to the seat. I'm just telling you. And uh, had a young man take interest in me and say, you want to go to us with us to Pizza Hut? I said, yeah. And that young man mentored me for two years and answered my phone calls at three in the morning and walked me through scripture and Gave me John Bevere tapes and and I soaked it up, man. I soaked it up. I soaked it up. I'm just here to tell you that it's the children that are going to inherit the world. It's the children that are going to come out on top. It's not going to be the wise or the prudent or the ones that we think. It's just those that will answer the call of God. And he's calling. Windows in the scripture, windows of heaven are a picture of, of clouds, actually. How they filter sunlight and let through rays. When it says that God will open the windows of heaven, that's talk for clouds. So now that we're in Jesus, remember Jacob had the dream? He hadn't had any, any experience with God up to that point, Genesis 28. And he goes to sleep and lays his head on a rock. That's a pretty tough place. You know what the Bible says? That the rock that followed around the children of Israel that gave them water was Jesus. So I've got a suspicion that the rock he laid his head on was Jesus. It didn't feel good. It felt hard. But yet there was something that opened up the future into it. And he begins to dream and the heavens open and he sees that the angels are ascending and descending up and down this ladder. At that moment, he realizes there is a connection between heaven and earth. So now that we're in Christ and our sins have been dealt with, suddenly everywhere we go is an open heaven. But he tells Nathaniel, yeah, I saw you under that tree. Here comes somebody that is without guile. Daniel says, how do you know me? He says, you think that's something? From now on, you're going to see angels ascending and descending the whole time you're with me. 
So here we are. We don't have to wait for a window of opportunity. The window's already open. God already opened the window. You couldn't open the window. You couldn't have made the shot. You missed the mark with your life. But now God has hit the mark with his perfect life and calls you into relationship into himself. So we need to quit saying, God, come into my life. We need to say, saying, God, let me come into your life. And then I can start walking this thing out and begin to do what you've called me to do. Let's pray. Lord, God, we need you.